You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. Uh, Sagar and I were discussing yesterday. It certainly seems like the news yes. comes in waves, tidal Rains waves at times. Yes. And uh, it's definitely a feast, not a famine moment mm-hmm. in terms of news. Um, all kinds of new developments about the various inquiries that uh, Trump and his allies are facing, including Rudy Giuliani being told that he is, in fact, the target of a probe. We also have... <laughs> Interesting back and forth between Trump and the FBI about did they take his passports? Do they still have his passports? What does it all mean? So we'll get into that. Uh, The Justice Department saying, arguing in court that they do not want the affidavit of uh, giving all of the reasons why they wanted to conduct this search. They do not want that released to the public. So we have those details. Also, today is another primary day. Mm A couple of interesting races on the ballot. I'm going to be taking a look at Sarah Palin and Liz Cheney. We also have some new indications about some of the midterm races, Republicans continuing to struggle with fundraising in a way that is quite surprising. Major turnaround from how things were going for them uh, previously. And maybe the most hilarious, unintentionally hilarious campaign video I've ever seen coming from Dr. Oz. No bueno, Dr. Oz. Yes, let's just say it involves the word crudité. It involves French. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is, you're already going on the wrong uh, Okay. Um, also, some interesting info about the housing market. Uh, people expect a crash, but actually also a lot of people cheering for a crash who have not been able to buy a home and would like to be able to. Uh, and a New York Times endorsement that... Uh, failed to disclose a major conflict of interest. Yes. Uh, we also have Jeff Stein on today to break down the Inflation Reduction Act, which has now passed the House um, mm-hmm. and is going to be the law of the land. So dig into all of that with him. But first, we asked you how you wanted, if you were a premium subscriber, to receive the show. Did you want it to continue to be on YouTube but have the quality degraded? Or did you want it to be uploaded to Vimeo? And Sagar, the results are? The results are in, and there has been a vicious battle. Uh, I can best (laughs) describe it as East Coast versus West Coast. The East Coasters, very adamant that they want their show on time. The West Coasters saying, I don't care, just release it in higher quality. So as a result, in order to please it, Central Timers, by the way, seem apparently split. Um, It's a a great privilege to have so many people who care so much about this show. You really had some feelings about this. Yeah, people had a lot of feelings. We got hundreds and hundreds of emails about this. So we we have decided that this is what we're going to do. We will do both. We will both release it on Vimeo so that you can get it as soon as humanly possible for those who are on the East Coast. And we will also include the YouTube link. Now, to be clear, that YouTube link can and often will take a little bit longer than the 11 a.m. EST derival, uh, arrival time. And so if the checks are running, if the link is not working, you can then, if you need your fix immediately, go ahead on Vimeo. We will not degrade the quality whatsoever. We'll keep the quality for those of you who watch it on your 4K television. And we will include Vimeo for those who want their immediate fix. So I am assuming this middle ground can please everybody. That is what everybody's asked for. And uh, yeah. I was so, telling soccer, you know, democracy is yeah, messy. Democracy. We're not going to stifle anyone's voice. We welcome all of your right. opinions. Very divided house here. Yeah, apparently. and I was saying, you know, the vote is actually 50-50 uh, <laughs> in terms of, and I was like, oh my God. You know, I, I genuinely thought that people would arrive <laughs> to a consensus, but they didn't. And well, look, we're not the country, so we can actually come up with a solution that pleases everybody. Try to accommodate That's what we're going to do from here going forward. If you have any more issues, you can send us an email. <laughs> okay. Oh, and live show. Yes. Live show tickets. Indeed. Don't forget to buy your live show tickets coming right around the corner exactly one month from today, 7.30 p.m., Uh, Center Stage Theater in Atlanta. We will be there. We're going to have a great show for everybody. But enough of the administrative topics. Let's get to the actual show. Now, as Crystal alluded to, when it rains, it pours. It certainly comes with this Trump raid in the FBI. The more details that we are learning. So as we had talked about previously, now we have the search warrant. We have the inventory list. We know it involves some sort of classified documents. We also know that in terms of the three laws that were cited by the FBI in their search warrant, none of the documents necessarily even have to be classified. Simply having the classification markings may be enough in order to violate the Espionage Act. Furthermore, we are also aware by open reporting that the Trump lawyers themselves, at least one lawyer, had signed a message to the FBI in June claiming that all classified marking documents had been delivered back to the FBI, again, opening themselves up for investigation, ultimately what led to the search warrant itself. As I said yesterday, part of the problem with the search warrant is we don't know a lot about the facts in the actual investigation that led to said search warrant actually being executed. And as I was saying, I was really hoping we get the affidavit. Well, news organization, think like-mindedly, all are filing in requests in order for the Department of Justice to release the actual affidavit themselves. And now we are learning from the Department of Justice in their protest of doing so, so a little bit more about their investigation. Let's throw this up there on the screen. In a new filing that came out late last night, in a response to organizations' requests to unseal the affidavit, the Department of Justice says that it is objecting to the unsealing of that Trump search warrant. Throw the next one up there 
there on the screen, please. Part of the reason why that they are objecting is because the FBI affidavit, and let's pay very close attention to this language, people, makes reference to, quote, cooperating witnesses. And the DOJ says that their identities need to remain protected. Second, the Department of Justice confirms the investigation, quote, implicates highly classified materials. So, why do those two things matter? Number one, in terms of the classification, uh, obviously it upholds the general contours, but they're making it and saying that it is in such highly sensitive documents that even describing themselves, as we saw in the FBI inventory, it just said highly classified documents, it didn't say anything, that it in and of itself, they say, would threaten national security. But really what I think it is, is that they said and confirmed that they have cooperating, well, they didn't confirm they have cooperating witnesses, but they said unsealing it would cause undue harm to any cooperating witnesses they may have. Gives a significant amount of credence to that theory that there is some sort of FBI mole, rat, whatever you want to describe it, in the operation. It could be a member of the Trump legal team. It could be a Secret Service agent. It could be any of the number of people who are around Donald Trump himself. And then uh, finally, some language that they used in their objections to the unsealing, the third one, let's please put it up there, is that they said disclosure of the warrant affidavit would irreparably harm the government's ongoing criminal investigation because there had been some speculation here, Crystal, on whether the search warrant was an end in and of itself Mm -hmm. to just seize the documents, not part of an ongoing and active criminal investigation. So those are, I would say, the three main things that we have learned from this filing. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to read the tea leaves on all this stuff as best we can, the little bit of limited information. It would be so um, interesting to see all of the details of this affidavit. And certainly as someone who works in the news business, I would very much, very (laughs) much love for them to disclose this. Ultimately, it's not surprising, though, um, because, you know, I think there's there's two considerations. One is they don't want to compromise their investigation. They don't want Trump and his allies to know exactly how they were able to glean all of this information. They certainly don't want them to know who the rat or multiple rats. What's like the, what, is it a warren of rats? Uh, a den of I don't rats? Actually, I don't know. It's a den of rats, I de- believe. Anyway, yeah. uh, they don't want them to know the yeah. identities of those people. <laughs> and you mentioned it could be someone on his legal team. I mean, yeah. the more I think about that, the more I wonder if that actually makes a lot of sense. Right. Because, you know, if you think about it, they're trying to help him work with it through this issue with the National Archives. He's maybe potentially telling them like, yeah, of course, I, I handed over everything. And if they discover that that's not the case, they could find themselves in mm-hmm. potential legal jeopardy. So you may have someone involved here who's trying to save their own ass by informing on Trump and giving uh, the FBI the information that ultimately they put into this affidavit and help to uh, secure this search warrant. So those are the major uh, revelations here. Now, it is theoretically possible that the judge could say, uh, no, government, I don't agree. We're going to go ahead and unseal the affidavit. But that is highly, highly unlikely, especially with the government making the case that the affidavit should remain sealed. And as I said before, I'm not really sure that Trump would also want this to be unsealed um, because, you know, ultimately then you end up with a situation where he's sort of being tried in the court of public opinion. Um, an affidavit is not the same as a trial. There are things in there that could turn out to, you know, not pan out. It may be more suggestive than based on, you know, concrete. Here's what we know happened. So um, so anyway, not clear to me that he would really be in favor of this being released either. Yeah, affidavits aren't like statements of fact. It's like the government's case against somebody in a court in order to justify a search warrant. 
warrant. So like you said, it would include no pushback from the Trump legal team. It would simply be the but FBI their agents. Their side of the story. Their entire side yeah. of the story. And actually, I have personally learned the hard way covering terrorism cases. I mean, if think about it. If you read the Gretchen Whitmer just affidavit, yeah, you'd be like, be like oh, oh my God, there's a horrific kidnapping plot going on. Then you're like, oh, hold on a second here. And by the way, we, we should cover that trial soon in terms of some of the stuff that's coming out, even more so about FBI behavior. But what's remarkable to me about this is just the admission, both on the criminal investigation side and on the cooperating witness. I think the fact that I think it was always expected that they would not release the affidavit, but by objecting to the affidavit and specifically saying why they don't want to release it, yeah. that tells us a little bit about what's happening. Also, probably confirms, honestly, I mean, at this point, Crystal, we don't know how much more is going to come out about this investigation. Yeah. This kind of is it, at least for the next couple of months, barring leaks, of course. I'm talking at a very official level. Probably. Yeah. Um, uh, there was one other piece of reporting I saw come out yesterday from the Wall Street Journal that was in direct contradiction to, remember that original? Newsweek report that basically said this whole search was basically kind of a freelance operation yes. from the Miami FBI mm-hmm. office, and they were kind of in a bubble and didn't realize this would be so politically explosive. Well, the latest um, information reporting from the Wall Street Journal says, no, no, no. They weighed this very carefully. Merrick Garland weighed this for weeks mm. before he decided to go in and, um, you know, really considered the the costs and the benefits and the extraordinary measure that this was. So, um, you know, take from that what you will, but the very latest indication, which I think is backed up by the fact that Merrick Garland did give that press conference saying, taking ownership and saying, no, it was, I was the one who made this decision. I think it backs up, um, you know, that, that fact and really shows that they definitely thought long and hard before they went ahead and and did this, whether you think it was ultimately the right call or not. Yeah, I think that that's right. So anyway, lots of deliberation, uh, a confirmation about a so-called cooperating witness, uh, the criminal investigation piece, obviously. To be clear, we don't actually know who the target of that criminal investigation is, but anyway, take that. So now let's move on to yeah. Passport Gate. This has been a fun one. All right, let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. It was ignited by this truth that the former president put out. Wow. In the raid by the FBI of Mar-a-Lago, they stole my three passports, one expired, along with everything else. This is an assault on a political opponent at a level never seen before in our country. Third world. Exclamation mark. Now, why does this matter? First of all, there was rampant speculation online, Crystal, of, oh my God, this means the Department of Justice thinks he's a flight risk. Uh, all they're of this, like, preventing him, imminently. they're gonna charge yeah. him imminently, stop him from leaving the country. Uh, no, that's not how flight risks work. Those actually are ordered by a judge. We don't live in a country where the attorney general can simply decide you don't get a passport or not. Thank God, by the way, that we live in said country. Now, it came to the question, though, of did they actually seize those passports? And immediately, the FBI, actually objected to this. Let's throw this up there. Nora O'Donnell, she's the host of CBS News. She says, new, according to a DOJ official, the FBI is not in possession of a former President Trump's passports. Trump had accused the FBI of stealing his three passports during the search of Mar-a-Lago. So immediately the narrative became, oh, Trump is lying about the passports. Well, Further, though, the Trump team has now released actual the email correspondence between themselves and between the FBI team. And let's go ahead and read it. So unfortunately, we don't have an element uh, cut for everybody. But 
Here's what the email traffic go ahead and says. This was sent August 15th, to be clear, yesterday at 10.50 a.m. Mountain Time. So you can do the conversion in your head. <laughs> Evan and Jim, with this is from Jay Bratt at the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. I'm reading directly. Evan, Jim, presumably members of Trump's legal team. We have learned that filter agents seized three passports belonging to President Trump, two expired, and one being his active diplomatic passport. We are returning them. They will be ready for pickup at the Washington field office at 2 p.m. today. I am traveling, but you can coordinate further with blank, who is copied above. Thanks. So what do we learn from that? Yeah, they did take his passports. They took all three of his passports, as Trump claimed. Now they're offering them back. However, it was very disingenuous, Crystal, of the FBI to say, no, 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 we don't have his passports at all. It's true. I mean, you took the guy's passports. Now, I mean, in some ways, you could say this is the system working. Right. These so-called filter agents, their job, and I don't really understand how this is quasi-legal, but whatever. Their job is to basically sift through everything that's taken, mm -hmm. determine what is privileged and non-pertinent information, right. and return that over. And then the investigative team is supposedly, again, supposedly, not allowed to use that information. I don't know. It seems a little sketchy to me. That being said, they did take the passport, and then they did offer to return it. So it's kind of a middle ground. But the fact is, they did take his passports, all three of his passports, I interestingly enough. I should have picked yeah. up right away on the way they yeah. phrased that. So freaking weasley. Yeah, it is. We are not in possession right. of the passports, which right. maybe technically was true at that point because they'd already returned them. Right. But it's like— I don't know why they felt the need to, like, push back so strongly on this when it is the case that they took them and then, yeah, they right. returned them and it's all fine and good, I guess. But I, I don't know. Very Weasley on the FBI's part, I guess, also. Oh, absolutely. And look, I mean, it is extraordinary to seize the former president's passports, as they actually alluded to. Uh, and I didn't know this. Apparently, ex-presidents do get to keep diplomatic passports, which is fascinating because they're not actually government figures. But yeah, for suddenly those, everybody became experts in, like, yeah, passport, passport protocol lore. yesterday. Yeah. All I know about diplomatic passports <laughs> is I get pissed off when I'm in the immigration line and I see those people get to zip through mm. on the side. And apparently, as I understand it, what it is is that diplomatic passport obviously means you're an agent of the U.S. government or, you know, in some affiliation. And thus your pa your travel and your visa and all that is just a little bit different whenever you're going through both security and also whenever you're entering other countries as to your visa requirements. So apparently that's what it is. I guess it would make sense that it would apply to a former president, um, regardless of whether they were— um, uh, still in office or not. But anyway, it is true that they did take his passports. And the, look, I mean, they could just justify it and say, as I did, it was like, well, you know, the filter team took it and then we gave it back and it's available, whatever, mm -hmm. at the field office. But I mean, personally, I think that they just tried to quash the story and to spin things when they should have just been upfront and told the truth. The email exactly, traffic reveals yeah. clearly that they took the damn passports and then offered it back. Okay, fine. Right. Just say that. But, you know, this was this was really a disingenuous move on their part and also on the media for not checking. They should have what they should have said is, well, wait, hold on a second. Did you ever Did you have them were in you your ever possession? In possession? No. Were they ever in your possession yeah. at any time? And it's also little things like this that give the Trump people real credence to be like, look, like these people are liars. You know, they're spinning things in the media and the media doesn't ask you, critical you questions, which is true. You, you should not be doing them, this. You can't give them a single opening. Yeah. And, they, and they they've, got, it. they've done yeah. that now. They yeah. really have this is like you know classic example of fake news yeah yeah and um the filter team thing is really ultra relevant
relevant because, uh, you know, Trump's latest yesterday who went through all of his various defenses, you know, yes. oh, they planted stuff. Oh, no, there was stuff, but it was mm-hmm. not classified. As We all take work home from time to time. And um, one of the things he landed on was they took privileged um, information, both attorney-client privilege and executive privileged information. Uh, now, as others pointed out, this is the way it works. These filter teams are supposed to sift through and pull that stuff out and then move forward with the investigatory relevant material. So I guess this shows that, you know, those are the teams that are in place to try to handle that sifting and sorting. Yeah. So that's the very latest that we know in terms of uh, Trump. Uh, Oh, there was one more piece. One more. Part three. Fox News. He did give a little interview. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Um, So this is kind of funny because there had been one line in another report for, I don't know, the New York Times or something that said that he had, through an ally, uh, given a message to Merrick Garland in the Justice Department saying basically like, I want to turn the temperature down. Well, now he's saying this to uh, Fox News. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. Trump, here's a headline from Fox News, a very favorable headline here. Trump, quote, will do whatever he can to help the country after FBI raid. Temperature has to be brought down. Um, He's, you know, here's a little bit more. He says that American people are not going to stand for this, for another scam. The country's in a very dangerous position. There's tremendous anger like I've never seen before over all of the scams and this new one. Years of scams and witch hunts and now this. The country is in a very dangerous position. There's tremendous anger like I've never seen before over all of the scams this new one, years of scams, and which ends is repetitive. People are so angry at what is taking place, whatever we can do to help, because the temperature has to be brought down in the country. If it isn't, terrible things are going to happen. Then he goes on to make all sorts of inflammatory comments himself. Mm -hmm. Of course, continues to post all sorts of inflammatory stuff on Truth Social, so I don't think anyone should take it face value, the idea that Donald J. Trump is trying to turn the temperature down in this country, because that is just not what he does, ever, in any instance, in his entire life life. Um, so given the fact, that fact, I mean, I guess this is like a version of another defense. Basically, like, you shouldn't go after me because the country can't take it, regardless of whether there was wrongdoing, regardless of, you know, what you found at Mar-a-Lago, whether it was classified or not, or sensitive national security information or not. You shouldn't go after me because the country is a tinderbox and it just can't take it. I, uh, so it's almost sort of like a veiled threat of if you continue down this path, bad things are going to happen. I also read it another way, which is that he saw what happened at the FBI, and he's like, I don't want this on me. (laughs) He's like, I don't want any of these incidents to actually be traced back to me, because as he has seen post-January 6th, it can cause you some serious issues, not only from a criminal investigation point of view, obviously also from a public hit perspective, and just, you know, basic expansion of security state and more against his own supporters, which has really been a net negative for literally everybody. So I think you can read it literally both ways. I think you're right, though, Crystal. I mean, certainly, look, anybody who's in a public position is going to be like, hey, you really want to go down this road? So anyway, I think on both sides, like he both is using his personal profile, but also uh, is probably weary of being tied to any more violence across the country, which, look, that's not a bad thing if, if he does have that in his head. Yeah. Let's move on then. There was oh, Hold on. There okay. was one little nugget at the end of this interview, though, yeah. that I wanted to take note of, which is they say sources close to Trump told Fox News the former president will soon be making an announcement uh, about a potential presidential run in uh, 2024. We had before talked about speculation that he may move up his announcement. We covered yesterday the polls that show basically his position with the GOP mm-hmm. base has never been better, never been stronger since he lost the last election. Um, and so he could potentially announce before the midterms— you know, maybe post-Labor Day, which 
I'm quite sure that Republicans wanting to take control of the House and Senate do not want whatsoever. He doesn't care. The la- yeah. Oh, yeah. he definitely doesn't yeah. care. The <laughs> last thing that they want is for this midterm election to be any sort of referendum on Trump versus Biden. They want it to just be about Biden, just be about inflation. So him inserting himself into the political fray just before the midterms could be another sort of disaster oh, for them. For the national GOP? Yeah. Yes. For his own personal profile, he'd be a fool. It's probably wise. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I think he'd be a fool. He, he should do it. Uh, he should have sure. done it Two days ago, uh, the moment that Glenn Youngkin and Ron DeSantis are all coming to his defense, he should have been like, I, I am the 2024 nominee. Freeze the entire thing in place. They, none of them have any standing to run against him. So, yeah, look, I mean, it's a, one of those cases where the national GOP and their fate is not tied with Trump's own personal incentives whatsoever. Yeah. The longer he waits, frankly, he's doing himself a disservice. I am not saying this as somebody's advocating for it. Only yeah, telling just you, an, <laughs> analytically. Analysis of yeah. what, the, what the facts are right. at this point. Okay, okay. so. So um, moving a little bit away from directly Trump and some of the people surrounding Trump, there was also a lot of news that broke yesterday. Let's put this first piece up on the screen. This is probably the biggest one. Rudy Giuliani, Mr. Mayor, former America's mayor, um, he has been told that he is a target of the Trump election inquiry in Georgia. Um, Now, you will recall we have a number of Trump-related investigations going on across the country. We, of course, have the one we know about now that's associated with the raid down in Mar-a-Lago. We have uh, grand juries here in D.C. We have Letitia James in a civil, um, civil action in New York investigating his businesses. And we have this inquiry in Fulton County, Georgia, which also has a grand jury uh, impaneled and has been subpoenaing witnesses. We talked to Phil Merker yesterday, who's going to go testify in front of them. And we already knew from reporting that it seemed like they were very interested in what Rudy Giuliani had to say about and had to do with the fake elector scheme in Georgia. Now we are getting official confirmation uh, that he has been told, his lawyers have been informed, that he is, in fact, a direct target of that investigation. Let me read you a little bit of this New York Times piece. Um, They say that the legal pressures on Donald Trump and his closest allies intensified further on Monday as prosecutors informed his former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, that he is a target of a wide-ranging criminal investigation into election interference in Georgia. Now, important to note, Just being so identified doesn't guarantee Mm -hmm. that a person will be indicted, though you wouldn't want to be in that person's shoes. Rather, it usually means the prosecutors believe an indictment is possible based on evidence they have seen up to that point. Um, they go on to talk about how the, the prosecutors who were questioning witnesses last week, they really focused on Giuliani's appearances before state legislative panels after the 2020 vote. The crux of his conduct came during two hearings at that time. Um, he appeared before those panels. He spent hours, as they say, peddling false conspiracy theories about secret suitcases <laughs> of Democratic ballots and corrupted voting machines. And he told members of the state house, quote, you cannot possibly certify Georgia in good faith. Um, Now, uh, his lawyer, just to give his response, said that uh, he would probably uh, invoke attorney and client privilege if he was asked about questions about his dealings with Trump. And he says if these people think he's going to talk about conversations between him and President Trump, they are delusional. Mm. Um, One expert that they spoke to uh, really thought that, you know, this could potentially mean that Trump will eventually 
be a target of this investigation as well. They say there's no way Giuliani is a target of the DA's investigation and Trump does not end up as one. They are simply too entangled factually and legally in the attempt to use fake electors and other means to overturn the Georgia election results. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer, but that makes some logical sense to me. I mean, Giuliani wasn't acting on his own behalf. He was acting on behalf of the president. So you could see him being, you know, what they try to do in a lot of these cases is they go for the person that they know, you know, they can get based on the facts, and then they try to get them to flip and cooperate uh, on some sort of a plea deal to go ahead and inform on, you know, the person next up the chain. So it could be that that is the uh, direction that they're going in here. But, you know, uh, I I referenced before former Attorney General Eric Holder had mentioned he thought this investigation was the furthest along. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they are now informing Giuliani he's a target, I think, sort of squares with what he was saying there. Well, I think the crazy thing that they actually point to is, and we're going to discuss this even more, is the seizure of documents and analyzing of documents by the Trump team of actually sensitive election data, specifically involving this one county in Georgia. Georgia, Coffee County, Coffee County in Georgia, where election infrastructure apparently, and again, this is through emails and texts that the, the Georgia uh, Justice Department has got their hands on, was actually confirmation that this county's electoral system had been uh, breached by an unauthorized outside group. Now, who that group is, who they were working for, who they can be tied to, we have no idea. I'm going to go out on a limb. And guess that it involves Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and whoever that overstock and and- CEO is. I forget who that guy is. Patrick something. Oh. Um, he's like a multi-millionaire. I think Lindell anyway. was involved. Yes, in Lindell. Uh, in this circle, the people, the craziest folks that Giuliani and Trump both not only aligned but elevated at the yeah. very top of this campaign. So I think that's going to be the biggest problem that they have. And also it ensnares a hell of a lot of other lawmakers. Throw this next one up there on the screen, which is that Lindsey Graham is actually going to be forced to at least testify or oh, sorry, he was subpoenaed by the by the uh by Georgia. He sought to get the Fulton County District Attorney subpoena quashed by a federal judge. They actually denied that and said that Senator Graham had to have testimony on issues relating to attempts to influence or disrupt the lawful administration of Georgia's 2020 election. So I do think you're right, Crystal, which is that all of these lawmakers and others who played footsie with Trump, maybe even made a call or two on his behalf, even entertained any of these discussions with Sidney Powell or with Lynn Wood or any of these other folks, I think they're going to have some serious legal issues. They like really beyond being in charge, like they're going to have issues just like Mueller. I mean, you know, they cost thousands of dollars to testify before these lawyers and minimize your legal exposure, obviously guarantee a press story. So I think that's very much what the future is looking and like. And you don't have Trump in the White House to beg for a pardon anymore. Bingo. You know, so, right. um, you know, you don't have a legal get out of jail free card like they did when the big guy was was there in the, uh, in the presidency looking out for him. Um, Graham has been informed he is not a target of this investigation. So unlike Giuliani, it's not like he's facing right. uh, criminal indictment, potential criminal indictment. What they want to ask him about, uh, according to the reporting, is he placed at least two phone calls to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and members of his staff in the weeks following the election, seeking, quote, additional review of the absentee ballots according to court documents filed in support of the subpoena request. 
Um, now, apparently, this isn't the end of the legal road in terms of Graham trying to avoid having to testify. He can appeal this decision, and he has further, I guess, uh, appeals that he can exhaust, and they're con- going to continue to fight this. Basically, their argument is that, you know, his this was him doing his job as a senator, as, you know, the ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that you can't compel him to testify about the work that he was doing on behalf of the people is effectively their legal argument that so far the, the federal courts have not been impressed by. Um, you also have uh, apparently prosecutors demanding two other lawyers for the Trump team, Jenna Ellis and John Eastman. Yeah. They also want them to appear before the special grand jury as well. So we keep my eye on this particular investigation down in Georgia, which seems to be, you know, fairly advanced, fairly far along. And, um, you know, zeroing in on a couple targets, whether it ends up with the presence in their sites or not. Mm-hmm. Next piece, which is related, was a big old long story in the Washington Post about how Trump allied lawyers, some of which we just mentioned, um, pursued voting machine data in multiple states. Let's go ahead and put this Washington Post story up on the screen here. Uh, this is uh, some new reporting. I think we had some indications before that they had been able to access voting systems in a couple of places, but this is the most uh, comprehensive and fulsome picture we have of the activities. Sidney Powell intimately involved in this whole sort of convoluted scheme. Here's the lead to their story. They say a team of computer experts directed by lawyers allied with President Trump copied sensitive data from election systems in Georgia, Coffee County, as Sagar mentioned before, as part of a secretive multi-state effort to access voting equipment that was broader, more organized, and more successful than previously reported. That's according to emails and other records obtained by the Washington Post. As they worked to overturn Trump's election defeat, the lawyers asked a forensic data firm to access county election systems in at least three battleground states, according to the documents and interviews. Um, Firm charged an upfront retainer fee for each job, which in one case was $26,000. Just to give you a sample of the type of uh, behavior they were engaged in here, they say Sidney Powell sent that team to Michigan to copy a rural county's election data. She later helped to arrange for it to do the same in the Detroit area. A Trump campaign attorney engaged the team to travel to Nevada. And the day after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the team was in southern Georgia copying data from a Dominion voting system in rural Coffee County. <laughs> because the people who were involved in administering the elections in Coffee County were sympathetic to the cause, uh, they basically got access to everything. And so you have the irony of these people who claim to be out there, you know, fighting the, stopping the steal and stopping the election fraud, actually compromising sensitive election systems and voting data and gaining access to this voting data in a way that is highly questionable at best. So this is another piece of the story that we're just, um, just starting to fall into place that could be also relevant to this Georgia inquiry. Oh, yeah. I've done, I, I forget where I did the monologue. It might have been at Rising. It might have been here. Probably here. About Arizona and, like, this post-audit and how actually the audit ended up compromising right. like, thousands of right. voting machines. Yes. Same deal. Sanity. Same it's deal. The same thing. They, you know, they even point to the fact this is serious business. There's a Republican, Tina Peters. She was a local election uh, figure in Mesa County, Colorado. She was indicted on a felony conspiracy charge and commit a conspiracy to commit criminal impersonation and attempting to influence a public servant by trying to get access to these rural election data. And all of this, again, all of this is based on the 
insane claims that Dominion voting systems and that, you know, bamboo ballots and Cubans and, you know, Chinese operatives and Italians were influencing the vote in Coffee County, Georgia. Once again, it has nothing to do with, oh, well, big tech and Mark Zuckerberg spent, no, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It doesn't have anything to do with Pennsylvania election law and mail-in balloting. It doesn't have anything to do with ballot drop boxes. It has to do with the actual physical claim that the 2020 election was purposefully manipulated at the actual individual data level in these corrupt voting machines. That is the level of insanity of which this actions were taken upon, which look, I mean, many people said it at the time too. It's like this, you need to be careful because you're dealing with some of the most nation's critical election infrastructure. And by claiming stop the steal and trying to prove your insane theories, I mean, I guess in a way they did believe it because they were willing to go to possibly criminal lengths in order to do so. They opened themselves up to extraordinary legal jeopardy. Yeah. And that that's, seems to be the case. Yeah. Uh, state it, by state. You know, this isn't even a federal case. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. I think that's actually a really good way to put it is what we're talking about <laughs> here is the most insane of the election conspiracies. I mean, after the fact, they've tried to sort of clean it up and, Mm -hmm. you know, Dinesh D'Souza put out his effort with the mules and all this stuff to make it seem somewhat more plausible than like, you know, dead Venezuelan dictators and Italian whatever, spy satellites and whatever other (laughs) insanity they were floating at the time. But these efforts that Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and the others uh, were engaged with were directly as a result of the craziest, most unhinged versions of these conspiracy theories. Um, We have one more legal update for you here, guys, which is uh, another White House lawyer that was subpoenaed. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is Eric Hirschman. Um, The Justice Department has subpoenaed him. He was a former Trump White House lawyer. He has also been uh, cooperating with the January 6th committee. Uh, He uh, reportedly was one of the people who was clashing with the more insane uh, people like the Sidney Powells of the world who pushed the defeated president to fight the election results. He was present for many of the most consequential meetings in that period of time. Uh, Among them, they say, was a high-stakes meeting where most of the Trump Justice Department's top brass threatened to resign rather than work under a colleague who wanted to advance spurious claims of widespread voter fraud. They say he sparred with Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn when they urged Trump to have the military seize voting machines. I remember that when that all uh, came out in the press as well. So um, they say he represented Trump in the former president's first impeachment trial. You might remember him from that. Later joined the White House as a senior advisor. Did not work in the White House counsel's office, but did provide Trump with legal advice. And because of that responsibility, there will likely be litigation over the scope of the subpoena and over how executive and attorney-client privileges may limit his ability to comply. Just another indicator of, you know, another person who uh, grand jury is wanting to question and um, who is, uh, has a lot of knowledge of what was going on in those wild days when there were these major battles happening in the White House and these sort of totally unhinged characters trying to do insane things like have the military seize voting machines. Yep, very well said. A little bit of a midterm update here for you. Uh, Interesting uh, new details about some honestly quite surprising fundraising issues that the Republican Senate 
uh, candidates are having in particular. Let's put this up on the screen. So they say the Senate GOP campaign arm slashes TV ad buys in three states in a sign that fundraising trouble is taking a serious toll. A key political committee cancels ad plans in Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, The National Republican Senatorial Committee, they have cut now more than $5 million in Pennsylvania, including their reservations in the Philly media market. Um, They've also slashed reservations in Wisconsin in the Madison and Green Bay markets. Those have been curtailed by more than $2 million. In Arizona, all reservations after September 30th have been cut in Phoenix and Tucson. That is the state's only two major media markets, amounting to roughly $2 million more. So far, around $10 million has been canceled as of midday Monday, though more changes to the fall reservations were in progress. Now, in fairness, um, the response from the Republican Senatorial Committee was basically like, look, we're not canceling these. We're moving money around. We're reallocating, whatever. But um, if you look overall, it's pretty clear that they've pulled back from the amount that they are Mm -hmm. spending in these states and in these media markets. This comes on the heels of another report that we had covered here as well that showed that the total amount of online donations to Republican candidates, direct candidates, so not to the senatorial committee, but directly to the candidates, has actually been falling. So it fell by more than 12 percent in the second quarter compared with the first quarter, according to an analysis of WinRed. That's the main online Republican fundraising platform. And that's very unusual. Usually, as you get closer to an election, online donations go up and up and up. So the fact that in the second quarter they saw them fall off was quite significant. Republicans said, well, it's inflation. It's a bad economy. So, of course, our people are getting hit. However, Democratic contributions at the same time surged, and Democrats are living in the same country with the same economy. Their uh, contributions on Act Blue jumped by more than 21%. So I suppose when you look at this entire picture, it seems pretty clear that they're having some fundraising struggles. And to tie it back, Sagar, to what we're talking about with Trump potentially announcing for president before the midterms, part of their issue is that he sucks up so much of the yes. online fundraising. Right. Um, he's a total pig when it comes to like, you know, he's super greedy. Doesn't They're dole it out. Abusing, yeah, doesn't dole it out. Really hitting those fundraising lists over and over and over again and has so centered the party around the person of himself that, yeah, that's where the grassroots base is overwhelmingly giving. And you can only imagine that if he does announce for president before the midterm election, that's only going to, you know, only going to exacerbate some of the fundraising issues that the rest of the party is having right now. Yeah. And actually, Politico had a story out this morning where they say that the midterm election campaign and the NRSC's decision to cancel millions of dollars is actually also a commentary on the inability of states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina to raise enough money. So essentially what they're saying is that J.D. Vance, uh, Doug Mastriano, and um, sorry, Doug Mastriano and Dr. Oz, and also in North Carolina are not raising enough money on their own. And so they need to be able to pull money away from other states and slash budgets so that they can bombard the airwaves. Yeah. And this has never happened before. It's also the case that they shouldn't have had to spend money in Ohio. Right. I mean, Ohio should have been a gimme. They right. shouldn't have had to worry about that state. They're having to worry about, you know, they're having to pour more resources into a place like Georgia that also, frankly, in a year like this, should have been mm-hmm. a gimme, even with an incumbent Democrat in place right now. So the fact that, you know, their candidates have dramatically underperformed, both in terms of their positioning with the electorate, but also in terms of their fundraising ability, has put them in a bit of a squeeze. Um, I think also the fact that a number of these candidates have no electoral experience. So they haven't built out 
They haven't done fundraising before. And just like anything else, political fundraising is a skill. It takes time to learn. Um, It really sucks having, you know, being someone who dialed for dollars uh, long ago. I can tell you (laughs) it is no fun to do whatsoever. Um, But it takes time to, like, build out those specific political donor networks. And so if you have all of this slate of brand new candidates who have never done this before, you know, there are other advantages to having outsiders who don't have a sort of, like, electoral track record in that baggage but one of the downsides of um, of going with these sorts of candidates is they don't have uh, established sort of networks and established abilities in fundraising. And I think that is a drag on them. That's right a now. point Kyle Kondik made. I think yeah. it's an excellent point. You know, at the same time, Democrats are <laughs> washing cash, uh, like a lot of cash in many of these specific states and are hitting Republicans where it hurts. Really interesting story here. Let's put this up there, which is that in all of the battleground states, Democrats are going all in on abortion in terms of their messaging as basically we predicted here on this show. And given the results of what happened in Kansas and in many of the special elections that we have now seen, it seems like a good choice. And you'll see there, there's four different screenshots from ads. In Arizona, blanketing the ad space. In Blake Masters, who had previously alluded to wanting a national ban on abortion. I think he's going to come to regret that one in terms of his messaging. Tudor Dixon, who was the so-called you know moderate nominee, She has said previously she doesn't want any exceptions for rape or incest in an abortion law, and they're, of course, putting that and highlighting that. Doug Mastriano specifically saying in May, quote, my body, my choice is ridiculous nonsense, and they're calling him Doug Mastriano, make all abortion illegal, and even in Alaska saying Alaskans should have a right to choose. Alaska being probably a much more kind of libertarian type state, but really it just shows you that across all of these states, all swings, all of them are immediately picking on abortion as their top issue that they're spending money. That Apparently, even with uh, Michigan and Tudor Dixon, they're not talking about election conspiracy, nothing. It's just all abortion. Georgia, they're doing the same thing. And Arizona and in, yeah, Arizona and Pennsylvania, I think, are going to be the most significant. Given Arizona, of course, is a conservative state, you know, but also went for Biden. But as I alluded to, you know, are going to have a little bit more of a libertarian ethos, Pennsylvania also, I mean, a true actual swing. And that is where a place like that to say actually no exceptions whatsoever. That's just, you know, look, no matter how you feel, in terms of public opinion, that does not track with public opinion. Yeah, so, that is know, a, it's an issue. extremely fringe view. Yeah, yeah and, and the case that they're making, um, the sort of like broader portrait they're trying to paint is like, you know, look guys, you might not be thrilled with the Biden administration and how the economy is going right now. But these people are crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, they are out there. They are way too extreme. They are sort of ideologues and zealots. And so abortion is the entree to making that larger case that, you know, these candidates are are way too out of the mainstream for you to ultimately elect. Just to give you some of the numbers on this, because I do think it's really interesting, Democrats um, have spent nearly eight times as much as Republicans on ads talking about abortion. $31.9 million just this far spent on abortion ads compared with $4.2 million on the Republican side. And in the closest Senate and governor's contest, Republicans have spent virtually nothing countering the Democrats 
Democrats offensive. Now, um, I've seen Democrats make this mistake in the past where they're getting hit on an issue that they're taking on water. I think CRT is a good example yep. of that. And they just try to like, let's not talk about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Like you have to respond. You have to give your side of the story. You have to lay on, no, here's what my actual views are. Here's why that's wrong. Or here's why I believe what I believe. Just sort of staying quiet on this and hoping it goes away, I don't think is going to be a good strategy here. And a lot of what they're doing in these campaigns is they're using these abortion ads as like the opening message. So to define these candidates out of the gates as like, these people are extreme, and then they move on to whatever the broader case is that they ultimately want to make. I thought it was interesting that I quote here from uh, Anna Greenberg. She's a Democratic pollster, but the way she phrases it is, rarely has an issue been handed on a silver platter to Democrats that is so clear-cut. It took an election that was going to be mostly about inflation and immigration and made it also about abortion. And the polling at this point is really clear that there was a shift after the Dobbs decision. And this is a very different race than it was before the Dobbs decision. The generic ballot is basically tied. You have a much better chance of Democrats being able to hold on to the Senate. I still would maintain, given how the polls have been biased um, against Republicans and in favor of Democrats, that Republicans are still very much the favorite, that the landscape still very much favors them. But um, Democrats, in a rare act of political intelligence, have done a few things that have given them a long-shot chance to have a better midterm than was previously expected. I think that's right. So, Although it doesn't take a genius to figure this one out, looking at polling data. (laughs) But listen, that hasn't stopped them before. Yes, they have, you know, in the past gone out of their way to do the dumbest possible right. thing. So um, we'll give them, we'll damn them with fake praise here. Okay, and uh, this is a little bit of a look at why the Republicans are having some issues here because I continue to maintain this election, when you look at it, like the further you step back and look at the macro, you know, oh, the economy, inflation, wrong track, right? Biden's approval numbers, the more you're like, oh, Republicans are going to just clean up. It's going to be a shellacking. And the closer you zoom in at the actual races and the actual candidates, the more you're like, Oh, this is not going too well. Case in point, Pennsylvania. John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz. So Fetterman has been raking Oz across the coals of being an elitist, of being an outsider, of being from New Jersey. I mean, we played some of the stuff here, which has been really quite funny and amusing, and I think very politically effective, as borne out by the polls, where Fetterman now has, in the average of polls, a 10-point lead on Dr. Oz in the state of Pennsylvania, a state that really should be Republicans to lose this year. So Oz apparently decides— I'm going to do my everyman thing. I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to talk about prices. It's going to be super relatable. Here's how that went. I thought I'd do some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's, and my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks. Not a ton of broccoli there. Here's some asparagus. That's $4. Yep. Carrots. That's four more dollars. That's $10 of vegetables there. And then we need some guacamole that's four dollars more and she loves salsa yeah there's salsa there six dollars must be a shortage of salsa guys that's twenty dollars for crudite and this doesn't include the tequila i mean that's outrageous and we got joe biden to thank for this 
So literally campaigning on the outrageous price of crudité. crudité. So I was asking you before, I'm like, I have literally never heard crudité. Like, look, maybe I'm just unrefined, you know, haven't spent <laughs> enough time in, Par- in Paris or in France. Apparently, it just means a vegetable platter. Like, you know, like a it raw It literally just means platter. like veggies and dip. Why couldn't okay. you say that? Just say that. Be like, I am. My wife wants a veggie dip, so I'm going to go get some. You could make the exact same point. Also, it's called Wegmans, not Wegners. Well, apparently. Which is a little bit of a problem. So, apparently, yeah. there was a lot of internet investigation okay. so into what this is the video. Investigation? There is Wegmans, yes. obviously, and there's also a Pennsylvania chain called Redner's. He was oh. actually at Redner's, but he, he morphed the two together and made it, what do you say, Wegner's? Yeah, he said yes. Wegner's. So, apparently, that's Honestly, what happened. Honestly, it's even worse. Yeah. I. Honestly, I have to admit, I watched this video so many times right. and I could not stop laughing because every time I watched it, I noticed something else that was just like bizarre. Like, for example, what kind of a maniac goes to the grocery store and is just like piling vegetables into their arm? I was thinking the same thing. Like, Why don't you have a cart? Why don't you have a basket? Have you been to a grocery store recently? Also, are you yeah. really going to like dip that raw asparagus in some salsa now, bro? Is that what you're doing? Good point. There's the chips. <laughs> yeah. yeah the chips um, and, some and then at the end, he's like, got to get the tequila because that's what people have with veggies and dip that's like totally logical there anyway it was it reminded me so much of the weird rich guy stuff that Mitt Romney would say during 2012 oh yeah where you're like are you even a human being Mm -hmm. like do you live on the ground on the planet with the rest of us have you been to a grocery store in the last like 40 years (laughs) what is going on here so the other point that uh, I thought a very good observer made online is this definitively proves that his campaign team definitely hates him okay. because otherwise— yeah, they would never have put this out. No exactly. way you let him go forward with this video where he's talking about Wagner's and crudite. Right. Not a chance. Like, this could not have been better scripted if the Fetterman campaign did it themselves. Yeah, and Fetterman actually quote-tweeted, and he said, in PA, we just call this a veggie tray. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know? That's, it's like, why is this— so hard, and his ads have just been so oh, cringe. So this bad. again is further evidence to me that Oz is has Oz's problem is that he is turning his campaign over to the absolute most brain dead GOP consultants mm-hmm. who used to work for Mitch McConnell. And this latest ad is the most perfect example. You could put it in a capsule as to what they think is quote politically effective. Let's take a listen. <coughs> Fetterman wants to release one third of all prisoners. That's crazy! Spend more tax dollars, everything will cost more. That's nuts. Slow energy production, gas prices will skyrocket. That's ridiculous. Socialized medicine? Where do you get these crazy ideas? Now it makes sense. Better close it up. John Fetterman is crazier than you think. That is genuinely one of the worst ads I've ever seen. Uh, and this is the thing. You can make the case on all of that. The other issue is, is you should not be talking about John Fetterman, period. You should just put his face next to Joe Biden and then run, honestly, say nothing and just run that for 30 seconds straight of Fetterman on a highlight reel being like, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, meeting with Joe Biden, shaking hands with Joe Biden. Joe Biden has like a minus 30 approval rating in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah. That's all you have to do. Just be like, John Fetterman will go to Washington and vote for Joe Biden. Do you like Joe Biden? These things haven't worked well about Joe Biden. Once I, w- I would say Biden's name 
like, remember when the Republicans ran against um, the Democrats in 2010? Actually, yeah, you were running then. Yeah. They didn't talk about even the candidate. They just said Obama's Obama. name and over Pelosi. and over again. Obama, Obama and Pelosi. Pelosi. Obama Pelosi yeah. agenda. And I actually, you would, be be- you would be better off um, going after Pelosi. Yes. Than- Bernie Sanders is like one of the more popular Democratic so politicians. Leadership, so it doesn't even matter. Yeah, so like, exactly. And, yeah. you know, I mean, we were, uh, of course, on the left laughing at they have, for those of you who are just listening, they have like AOC pop up with a sign that says free health care for yeah. all. And we're like, yeah, that'd be good. Like, don't threaten us with a good time. Anyway, it's very clear that, number one, it's being run just by this like totally tired, standard yes. Republican, like socialism bad playbook. Number two, it's not even intelligent given that the least popular and the leader of the party is Joe Biden. Like, that is the person clearly you should mm-hmm. be uh, aiming your fire at. And number three, you know, I was thinking about the, the, like, rich guy problem that he has. I mean, you can pull off being the rich guy who's the, you know, successful, like, somebody that everybody should aspire to. That's what Donald Trump did. Uh, I mean, Donald Trump never tried to be the everyman because it just would be ridiculous. That wasn't his thing. He just leaned into, remember when at uh, the Iowa Fair, he had, like, his helicopter yeah, take people up and around, yeah. and everything was about him looking, this, like, his family being glamorous and all this stuff. This picture of American success, the vaunted businessman, all of that. But Oz is trying to pretend like he's an everyman and then failing so hard at it. And I've seen so many politicians it's so standard to like, you know, we're going to buy a pickup truck and put right. on a Just flannel shirt for are. the campaign ad. So I've seen a lot of cringy attempts at being the everyman. This is potentially the worst that I have ever seen. And that is saying a lot in terms of yeah, politics. Just, just be who you are. You're a television star. Just be that. I think that's honestly fine. You know what he'd be better off doing in terms of ads? Would be holding some sort of like fake focus group thing where it, just like the Dr. Oz show and he'd yeah. be like, tell me how Joe Biden's policies has affected you. You know? Yeah, I mean, that would lead how is this his, difficult? It leads yeah, like, into your yeah. strengths. Do like an ad, which is a 30 second version of the Dr. Oz show where you, look, I mean, what was his strength? Being empathetic, talking with people, feeling their struggles prescribing a solution. Okay, I mean, why is this difficult? I I, I don't even work in this business and I you can are, figure this out. You are not out. going to out every right. man John Fetterman. Never. Like, yeah. if you're trying, you are trying to compete on his turf. Right. That's his lane. That's what he, like, people get that authentically right. from him and feel that that is actually who he is. You are never going to be able to compete with him on that ground. So that's why you're losing by 10 points. Yeah. And, you know, we should point out, like, you know, it's not like Fetterman is in a phenomenal position right now. He just went, came back on the campaign trail, obviously had a stroke. It was very serious. He's out in public mm-hmm. eye for quite a while. And it really is quite incredible that during that time when he was basically not campaigning is when they just have been destroying us. On I mean, the air, ga- online, yeah, right. on the air, online, defining him in this totally, car- you know, caricaturish way that he then goes and completely leans into and like 100% validates. And uh, Fetterman recently did return to the trail, did a rally, gave a speech. And look, you can tell that he's still not 100%. Now, it's incredible this short period of time he's recovered as much as he has, but you can still tell in his speech that he's not 100% back to where he was. Let's take a listen to that. And you can count on us to eliminate the filibuster if you come out and step with us. We will be able to stand with you in D.C. I gave away the lieutenant governor governor in Pennsylvania, the only lieutenant governor in the history to do that. And let's 
Let's get some stuff done for America. Who would ever think that I would be the normal, the normal one in the race here? You know, with that. So I, that is obviously like clipped to show yeah. some of the toughest moments in that speech. But I did go back. It's not deniable. I, I watched. Yeah. I watched the whole thing so that you know I could give a fair assessment of of it and. You could tell he's a little slow. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no doubt. This was not uh, in, like over the top, like outrageous, out of context, or anything like that compilation of how he was able to perform in that speech. So you have a guy who is struggling uh, health wise, you know, still recovering from a significant and life threatening health event, and you're getting your ass kicked by him, like undeniably so at this point. Yeah, I mean, look, as you said, uh, at the end of the day, if you zoom out, the conditions are very favorable. So does Oz still have a fighting chance despite all of this cringe? Yeah, he does. Now, should he even have to have a fighting chance? Should he have way more of that and should be a shoe-in? Yeah. So like that, I would say, is the fact that it is anywhere even close to some sort of 50-50 proposition, maybe even, honestly, 60-40, yeah. or 55-45 or whatever on Fetterman, it should never even be within that margin of error. You should have absolutely cleaned up given the way that Joe Biden has his approval rating there. So he needs to step it up. But I mean, it's clear he's just not not going to. At this point, he's, he's not, not going to do what needs to be done. He better just hope and pray for a terrible economy. Um, and look, I mean, Fetterman doesn't have a lot of public events scheduled. Clearly, he's, you know, he's recovering from a horrific health condition. There's just no, it's one of the most serious health events that can happen to you. I wish the man the best, but you know, nobody on earth would tell you that the best thing you can do after you have a stroke is continue to campaign on the campaign trail. So, you know, each side has its own pluses and minuses, but I think it's just insane that things even got to this point, truly. All right, let's talk about housing. This is a hilarious study, Crystal, that you found. Let's put this up there on the screen, which is that right now, obviously, we're in the middle of Providing, a housing... Uh, for for Facebook or other platforms to... Where did that come that's from? That's Oh, that's in yours? I'm like, what the hell is that? It's okay. All right. Three, two, one... Right now, we're obviously in the middle of a housing slowdown, and it turns out that a lot of people are actually pretty happy about that. So right now, 78% of Americans expect to have a housing market crash. This is according to the latest Consumer Affairs Study, which is a major consumer information service that businesses buy in order to tell what consumer sentiment is. However, 63% of those people actually want to see a housing crash. And if you dig deeper, 75% of people say they have cash stored away to buy a house should the market crash. They actually have an actual crash savings account. Dig even deeper than that, and you find that the youngest generation of adults, Generation Z, is actually the most eager for the crash. 84% are hoping for a housing crash and actually have some money that is saved up specifically in order to try and take advantage should this all happen. And look, perhaps they will get their wish. Let's put this up there. That U.S. home builder confidence right now is at the worst slump since 2007. As I actually have said before, that's a big problem because home builder confidence means that people who are, let's say, like halfway through a project may actually not finish their project. And if they don't finish their project, then we are going to continue to having massive housing shortage across the nation. Right. But I just think it's great. I mean, when is the last time that you've had a sizable chunk of Americans who are like, no, I want these markets to crash? And I think it's because of the disparate ownership, which is predominantly Absolutely. it's the wealth class and boomers who hold property. Everybody else is frozen 
out of the market or frozen out far more so than they have been in previous generations. So they're like, yeah, screw you. I want this thing to crash so that I can buy in. And especially Gen Z. I mean, for Gen Z, they, they don't have a chance of, of buying a house. Like uh, realistically, on average, even if you live in uh, you know, a, like a normal metropolitan area, it is just mostly unattainable without decades of savings. And if you have student debt or credit card debt, it's almost entirely out of the question. Yeah, I mean, this is becoming the real dividing, the real class dividing line is, you know, asset owners and not. And Mm -hmm. of course, the primary asset that most Americans own is a home. Um, If you aren't able to get your foot on in that, you know, door of home ownership, it becomes very difficult for you to sort of establish that, you know, a base of some sort of net wealth, a base of financial middle class or working class stability. Um, and so I, I have been wondering, as we've been covering the housing market a lot here, as you guys know, I've actually been wondering about these numbers of like, how many people are listening to this and hoping <laughs> that the housing prices and the market crashes, because then that gives them some hope and possibility that they will be able to, at some point in their life, also buy a home and have the stability that can come with that. Um, And now we have the numbers to back it up. So I did think that was really interesting. I mean, the problem, of course, is that the reason that the housing market is falling off and you have this, um, you know, uh, home builder sentiment at the lowest level since the housing market collapsed in 2007 is because as the Fed hikes rates, the thing that is most sensitive to it is the mortgage rates. And as the mortgage rates go up, yeah, the top line number might be going down, but in terms of your monthly payment, mm-hmm. that is going up and up. So it's really, you know, even if the market continues to go down and have problems and um, housing overall, the sales price becomes more affordable, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be easier for you to get your foot in the door. And then the other problem here, of course, is that, you know, the real issues we have in our economy are about supply, about a lack of supply. And that is certainly the case in the housing market where we have not built sufficient housing stock, especially post the last financial crash, to um, accommodate a large and growing population. When you have those interest rates going up, you have a slump in home building. And that then, again, exacerbates the price and the shortage in the, you know, home supply market. So there's a lot of complicating factors here that make it unlikely that even if the market really does crash, unless you're in a position to just plunk down, you know, 500K in cash, that you're still going to be in a very difficult position when it comes to acquiring a home. And I think that um, is reflected in the concerns of renters as well. 91% of them fear that increased mortgage rates will price them out of the home buying true. market. I mean, almost so, certainly true. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that is definitely the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I, your caution is warranted, which is that, yeah, look, the price may come down, but like, how are you supposed to afford it if the price does go down? Do you have enough cash in order to uh, make sure that you don't do that? Otherwise, you end up paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest. And just because you may have, you know, people said that average person has like 15 grand or something. People who are saving for a house have something like 15 grand saved away. I mean, how are you supposed to make any sort of down payment uh, with only $15,000 or even $29,000, which is that the on average for anybody who's not Gen Z. So look, it's a cluster basically all the way around because at the same time, I mean, you don't want retirees to see their main source of wealth just dwindle away, possibly what they were betting on in order to make sure that they didn't have to work anymore. So all the way, it's just not good. The solution generally is actually probably lower rates and just ton more housing. How you achieve that Without also feeding the wealth gap, I, I genuinely just have no it's, idea. It's 
Like, keep, the, keep the rates low yeah. so that mortgages so people can afford are it. affordable. Right. Um, and then you need, in addition to the uh, government help in terms of securing, securing a mortgage, you also need some help with that initial down payment so that it's not yep. just people who have rich parents who are like fronting their down payment that can get a house. And then you need rules basically blocking permanent capital from buying up the existing available housing stock mm-hmm. because that's the other problem. And as you said, you need to build a whole lot more housing. So... I guess the bottom line here is, you know, the same moral of the story that we uh, have a lot of times when we talk about the Fed, which is that, like, the Fed messing around with interest interest rates is not going to fix the problems in the housing market. They right. don't have the tools at their disposal to, you know, create a lot more housing stock, to help people get that initial down payment, to block private equity and other permanent capital for buying up entire communities so that, you know, they're able to come in with all cash and basically muscle out every first-time homebuyer from the market. Those are things that only legislators in Congress and, you know, some executive action can do. And since we have a more or less dysfunctional political system that is not really on the table at this point. Yeah, and so, you know, hilariously enough, literally as we're filming this, uh, the U.S. housing start numbers came out in terms of the number of building permits and starts on single-family housing, and it plunged 18.8% year over year just for see, this month, and 9% this is, in the last month. See, and yeah. this is this is the problem with the Fed increasing interest yeah. rates. Is it actually, it's not just that it's, you know, dealing with some of the, the wrong problems and causing a lot of pain for people and potentially triggering a recession, it actually is actively exacerbating the supply issues that led to inflation in some of these categories to start with. And I think that's a perfect example mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, there we go. All right, let's talk about the New York Times. This is an interesting uh, grab from Ryan Grimm. And it just is a very good preview into elite media, how these circles all work. So New York has had a lot of redistricting, specifically the city of New York, with some major battles, Jerry Nadler, Carolyn oh. Monroney, and yeah. others, and major primary is going on right now. And in one of those, in the New York 10th District, there has been a massive fight for not only the New York Times endorsement, but for all of the major figures in the area. And the New York Times has come out and endorsed Danny Goldman. You guys might remember Danny Goldman as the prosecutor for impeachment one. He made a lot of rounds on MSNBC, former DOJ figure. Obviously, that made him a little bit of a resistance media figure, which is perfectly poised to run in the city of New York for Congress. Well, it turns out, let's put this up there on the screen, that the Times has endorsed Danny Goldman out of several candidates in the race. And in their endorsement, they failed to mention that he also happens to be a family friend of the Salzberger family. This is per Ryan. Ryan points out that Goldman actually went to Sidwell Friends here in Washington, D.C., which is where the president's kids usually go, with several of the Salzberger, that his mother was actually chairman of the board of the trustees for that school, that his Kathy Salzberger, who also served on that board, that their son actually were just a year or so behind, and that their son is now an executive over at the Times Company, and that last year, after Goldman dropped out of the race, his father actually gave him $1,000. So a member of the family that owns the New York Times actually gave this guy's race a 1000 bucks. Now look, I'm not alleging some sort of grand conspiracy, but what Ryan points out is they did not even disclose this family relationship. Right. Now, our producer James apparently is from the district, so he was telling us, he's like, well, you know, if you look at the ideology of the candidates, uh, it doesn't even, you know, it it actually does align in terms of, you know, it would make sense some resistance figure gets endorsed by the Times. And it's like, yeah, okay, fine, Um, on ideological grounds. But, like, you still have to disclose and admit 
these things. And I just think it is a perfect preview into like these most elite, you know, New New England almost circles of these people, Mm -hmm. how they cavort amongst each other, giving money, and then just happen to get the Times endorsement. Maybe he deserved the Times endorsement. In fact, you know, looking at the candidates and others, he probably did align most. Again, completely fine. But you do need to disclose these types of connections that you have, especially when you bill yourself as the whole, you know, paper of record and all that. And apparently in their coverage, and this is what Ryan points to, it's not like they were all that fair to his opponents. That's the other, that's the other issue. Yeah, I mean, dude is a cringy neo-lib and the New York Times loves cringy neo-lib. But that doesn't mean you can't, you can just like bury the fact that there's a direct connection to your paper. Um, I think it's also like, there's some sad statements here too, because this guy is leading the field. Mm -hmm. He is an heir to the Levi Strauss fortune, one of a number of uh, big money heirs that the Democrats are elevating this primary season. (laughs) Um, He would actually, if he's elected, he would be one of the wealthiest members of Congress. And as you pointed out, his big claim to fame was, you know, being the lawyer on Donald Trump's first impeachment, which, you know, ultimately wasn't able to secure a conviction. So, uh, you know, apparently it's not being held against him. Didn't actually, you know, work. The other storyline here is, um, and actually we need to get Ryan on to break down all of these New York races because he's just like super in the weeds on all of this stuff. But uh, Mondaire Jones, who's a squad member, who you recall, there was a whole thing that we did cover here about when the district lines were redrawn. Sean Patrick Maloney, who is the head of the uh, Democratic Campaign Congressional Committee, he's the one who's supposed to be in charge of making sure Democrats keep control of the House. He immediately, without talking to anyone, announces for this district that Mondaire Jones also lives in. Right. And so there, there was this whole question of like, dude, are you really just without like talking to him, just bigfooting him like this? And then what ended up happening is, so he decides to run for this district. Jamal Bowman was also involved. He involved, decides to run for a different district. And then Mondaire Jones decides to run for this district. But it looks like it's not going that well for Mondaire Jones. I think partly because he doesn't live in this district. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of forced into running in this area by the um, big footing of Sean Patrick Maloney. So there's like a little subplot there as well. Now, I mean, he still is... Still is in the hunt, still has a shot. But some of the other contenders, I was talking to Ryan about this last night because, again, he's followed this more closely than I have. Some of the other contenders have real bases of support and are longtime, you know, political figures in this district specifically. And so they've been able to perform better than Mondaire Jones has being, you know, not from this area and not actually living like right in Manhattan in the city. So anyway, that's as much as I know about it. But, you know, you do have to love Democrats going for this like big money political heir who whose claim to fame is Donald Trump impeachment lawyer. Also, if you read the actual endorsement itself, what they point to is that they're like, his experience in the, uh, his experience prosecuting Donald Trump in Congress will make him well-equipped to fight for what New Yorkers want. When actually, there are people in the primary who are already representatives in Congress. So they have far more experience actually legislating. And all they point to is he's a lawyer, he was on TV, and he delivered this powerful impeachment case against Trump. Number one, it did not actually lead to a conviction. So powerful so that it didn't, didn't work. sway Republicans. Yeah, and by, also so powerful that it led to the highest GOP identification ever in right. January mm-hmm. of 2020. So politically, yeah, it didn't work. some of Trump's work. highest approval ratings. Exactly, his highest approval ratings during Ukraine gate. So combine all of that, that is the case. Once again, it probably does 
align most with the ideology of the New York Times. But you do need to disclose some of these family connections. And, you know, they don't disclose any of that. Par for the course, frankly, for most of them. Yeah. What's the saying? It's a small club and you yeah. win in it. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, Sagar, what are you looking at? Well, it's been nearly two and a half years since COVID hit the world. And really, only six months or so things think got fully back to normal in most of American life. Yes, some annoying places ask you to wear a mask. Many people, for reasons that genuinely mystify me, continue to wear them on airplanes or in grocery stores or strap them to kids' faces. But look, it's a free country. They can do as they wish. It is, however, important to remember that it really was not all that long ago that we lived in one of the most prolonged moral panics of our time. When it seemed that the rules were genuinely being cast out by those in power to institute a censorship regime that we have yet to fully grapple with. Some of it, to be honest, I can understand. We were dealing with a disease we knew nothing about. The people in power had yet to fully lose their credibility. Debates aside around hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, when some people on YouTube were legitimately recommending imbibing beach or other poisons, of course it made sense to act quickly. That regime, however, struck at a far more complicated debate very fast around the efficacy of masking around various drugs, including and up to literally removing medical doctors' testimony before Congress, and then debates around the efficacy of social policy like lockdowns or school closure or vaccine mandates. The rapidity with which that escalated was, of course, highlighted by this show at the time, but the single most egregious act occurred really only months into the new Biden administration in one of the most Orwellian government debates that had come out yet. Let's relive that experience. Providing uh, for, for Facebook or other platforms to measure and publicly share the impact of misinformation on their platform uh, and the audience it's reaching. Uh, also with the public, with all of you, um, to create robust enforcement strategies that bridge their properties and provide transparency about rules. You shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others uh, if you are for uh, uh, providing misinformation out there. That was over a year ago at this point, July 16th, 2021. We denounced it at the time as a direct call by the White House and the U.S. government to censor American citizens and to direct content moderation online well outside their purview. And while we denounced it as dangerous rhetoric, we now know that it actually went much further than that in a landmark case involving Alex Berenson. Berenson, you might know, is a prominent COVID skeptic. To be honest, I have always had a complicated relationship with Berenson. On the one hand, he is probably one of the most important modern figures in reigniting the debate away from reefer madness and highlighting the fact that marijuana, in fact, it does have consequences at scale for millions of people. On the other, he got a lot wrong during this pandemic. But at a basic level, what I really think about Berenson does not matter. He's an American citizen. He's a well-credentialed reporter who used to work at the New York Times. And he deserves the right to free speech, like any of us. Berenson, who runs a very popular substack and gained prominence during the pandemic, was permanently suspended from Twitter on August 28th, 2021, approximately one month after the White House statement. Allegedly, Berenson was suspended for, quote, repeated violations of our COVID-19 misinformation rules on Twitter. And that should have been that, right? But then something really crazy happened. Berenson, about a month ago, had his account reinstated. Not only that, his allegation of a conspiracy by both Twitter and the U.S. government to silence him actually does look to be completely true. 
Berenson maintained throughout his suspension he would prove in court he was unjustly removed from the platform because Twitter arbitrarily changed its rules surrounding content moderation despite assurances from executives at the company he was not going to be targeted for censorship. And while that may sound outlandish, a federal judge at least agreed that his suit could proceed because he specifically did have evidence to the fact that he was at least guaranteed in part by someone at the company who would be not be taken off. Now, however, more information released by Berenson has come to light, and it's crazy. Berenson revealed private internal messages from Twitter's Slack in which employees are seen discussing the aftermath of a meeting between the White House and senior executives at Twitter. Inside those messages, after a member of the staff asks how the White House meeting went, a senior exec replies, quote, Overall, pretty good. They had one really tough question about why Alex Berenson hasn't been kicked off the platform. What I just read you is a direct quote. They continue, quote, they really wanted to know about Alex Berenson. Andy Slavitt suggested they had seen data viz. He was the epicenter of disinfo that radiated outwards to the persuadable public. So it's important to note in that same conversation that an executive wrote, quote, I have taken a pretty close look at his account. I don't think any of it is violative. As Berenson notes in his Substack, his reinstatement has now come after Twitter has been forced to acknowledge that by their own rules, he should not have been suspended for his claims around vaccine efficacy at the time. Now, for those who also don't know, Andy Slavitt, who was mentioned there at the time, was a senior advisor and one of the most prominent members of the White House pandemic response team, meaning that in April of 2021, at the time of this meeting, his capacity as a member of the United States government and advisor to the president of the United States, he was actively pressuring Twitter to ban Berenson, and that in the same message, a Twitter executive said Berenson was not violating the rules. Months later, as the vaccination campaign escalated and the rhetoric became more heated, Berenson was banned only to now return. Take a closer look at the graphic that the White House actually cited, and it becomes really crazy. You know who else is on there? Elon Musk. Sports commentator Clay Travis, various anonymous Twitter accounts, even people like Charlie Kirk. The methodology of the graphic isn't even clear, and the extension of the logic is obvious. If you're there, the government of the United States identified you at the time as a quote-unquote disinformation spreader, and it was using it as power to get you kicked off of social media. The Jen Psaki statement actually becomes more sinister in retrospect. It was only the continuation of an internal war to pressure social media companies, a war that did actually work in this case. Here, I urge you to take Berenson out of it and to understand this as these are just American citizens. Their government should not be in the business of deciding what they get to say and where they get to say it. Their job is to put out information. It is a job of Berenson, people like myself, and many others. Parse it, debate it, yell at each other, tell you what we think. Then it's up to you to decide. That is foundational to a free country. The silence on this has now revealed a concerted campaign to target a journalist like Berenson. It's outrageous. And per his substack, there's actually a lot more to come. Berenson says he even has messages that prove that journalists themselves were pushing Twitter to deplatform him. Again, revealing how little you can rely on the established fourth estate to uphold the principles that even allow them to exist in the first place. I say, let it all come out. Reveal every single one of these people for who they are, and let's really internalize what the government did here so that we do not let it happen again. And Crystal, you and I are, were very careful at the time. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com.
Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys, it is once again primary day, and uh, I'm highlighting a couple of fascinating races that are on the ballot, and I think kind of tell the tale, the GOP past, present, and future. So you've got Liz Cheney in Wyoming and Sarah Palin up in Alaska. And if the polls are to be believed, Cheney, the daughter of the former vice president and one-time former heir apparent to the neocon crown, she's set to be defeated in pretty stunning fashion punished not for the terrible ideology that she still holds tight to, but because of arguably the most honorable thing she's actually done since arriving on the political scene. Then you've got Sarah Palin. She's on the ballot in a special election to fill the House seat of Don Young, who died in office. Now, Palin was actually the top vote-getter in the open primary to fill that seat, and now she's up against two other candidates, one Republican and one Democrat, to try to close the deal. The rise and fall and potential rise again of these two women says a lot about where we stand with the Republican party right now. Just take a look at the closing pitch for each. After enlisting her father to record a viral ad calling Donald Trump a coward and saying there's never been an individual who is a greater threat to our republic than Trump, I can think of a couple, one in particular, Cheney is now closing out her campaign with this message. As election day nears, I want to talk to citizens across our great state and all across our country. America cannot remain free if we abandon the truth. The lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen is insidious. It preys on those who love their country. It is a door Donald Trump opened to manipulate Americans to abandon their principles, to sacrifice their freedom, to justify violence, to ignore the rulings of our courts and the rule of law. This is Donald Trump's legacy, but it cannot be the future of our nation. So her continued unapologetic Trump opposition in a Republican primary in a state that he won overwhelmingly is basically an acknowledgement that this race is already over. And Liz Cheney is looking towards her next act, maybe as a lobbyist or potentially as a talking head. Her near certain defeat is exhibit number, let's say, three million, that this is, in fact, Trump's GOP. The fact that she voted with him on nearly everything and is conservative on just about everything doesn't matter at all. She's on the wrong side of the only dividing line in the GOP that actually counts, and that is her views on Donald J. Trump. The fact that she has such high approval ratings with Democrats tells you that the Donald Trump dividing line has become nearly the only thing that matters in all of politics, not just with the Republican base. Now, up in Alaska, Sarah Palin is trying to recapture her mama bear magic. Here's some throwback content that she is still posting to this day on her Twitter timeline, giving a little shout out to all of the uh, hockey moms out there on National Lipstick Day. <laughs> and here's a taste of her recent CPAC appearance. What are you calling him these days? <laughs> yeah, well, he's sleepy, Joe. Pretty <laughs> sleepy, kind of slow, bless his heart. Um, yeah, that was that was quite an experience. And uh, man, had I to do it all over again, I would not hold back. It's, it's a shame that the McCain-Palin campaign kind of had some shackles on me, not allowed to go rogue, because that's what our country needs right now, are fighters who are willing to go rogue and get out there and fight for what's right to save our country, because you all know, y'all know, the trajectory that our country is on right now, not real good, but we can turn that around. In case you were wondering, she also relives the whole hockey mom pit bull lipstick thing in that interview there as well. 
It's kind of weird, and it's honestly kind of sad to watch Sarah Palin now. Her vibes are exactly that of the guy who peaked as high school quarterback and is constantly trying to relive the glory days. When I was preparing this monologue, acquainting myself with Palin's current rhetoric, I actually expected to be kind of floored by some really wild wingnut type of stuff, <laughs> and I ended up being a little bit surprised at how tame she seems now compared to the new MAGA stars, people like Matt Gates or Paul Gosar or Marjorie Taylor Greene. Palin was kind of a precursor to this type of politics, a canary in the coal mine of the rise of Trumpism. John McCain wasn't really willing to directly scratch the itch of the Republican base, but Palin was. She leaned into trashing the media. She coined the drill baby drill line as a kind of rallying cry before Trump leaned in to build that wall. She dabbled in the very same birther conspiracies that helped raise Trump's esteem with the GOP base too. But now she's caught in a bit of an odd spot. She's still a polarizing figure, nationally because of her infamous vice presidential run, and in Alaska because she abruptly quit as that state's governor. Yet because she isn't quite as wild as the new crop of Republican political characters, she doesn't inspire fully ecstatic and committed support either. As a result, Palin has struggled with fundraising in her campaign. She appears to be locked in a pretty tough battle in her special election in spite of her top finish in the initial round. And that's another thing that's a challenge for Palin here. Alaska's new ranked choice system means that she's got to be the top choice for a lot of voters, but she's also got to be the second choice for a lot of voters, too. And that makes it more difficult for a polarizing candidate such as herself. Voters are likely to either have her as their top pick or want absolutely nothing to do with her. That makes it tough in ranked choice voting. So two figures connected to the GOP pass, one from the George W. Bush era, one from the early stirrings of Trumpism, one a almost certain goner, the other trying to regain her footing in the political era that she helped to birth. The irony is that in terms of how they would actually vote in Congress, they're probably nearly identical. <laughs> but policy is completely irrelevant in these contests so long as Trump continues to be at the center of everything. And Sagar, there's one other um, really interesting race on the. And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. So President Joe Biden is set to sign the Inflation Reduction Act into law. Um, it was a shocking turn of events. <laughs> a secret surprise deal worked out between Schumer and Manchin that they managed to keep the entire Democratic caucus on board with. And uh, joining us to talk about what this means, what's in it, all of the details, is the perfect guest yes. who has been following the ins and outs of this all the way along, even though when it looked like there was no hope that anything would actually come of it. Jeff Stein, economics reporter for The Washington Post. Great to see you, Jeff. Good to see you, man. Thanks for reminding me how uh, painful this whole thing has been. <laughs> Yeah, but it's yes. done now. Good. Yes, right. just about done and dusted. Um, yeah. Let's go ahead and put your latest reporting up on the screen, which I thought was a very interesting look at um, this legislation and what it hopes to accomplish. Uh, your headline here is West Virginia Coal Country Will Test Power of Democrats' Climate Bill. You interview uh, a man who has been a coal miner and, you know, of course, has seen ups and downs as that industry has declined and is now hoping to get a green energy job in West Virginia as part of this deal. Um, why don't you use that as an entree to talk about the approach to climate that this particular uh, deal and particular legislation hopes to enact? Yeah, so just to zoom out for a second here and give sort of the broader historical context, when climate change first emerged as a clear national, international crisis, the initial response from policymakers was to put a price on carbon. So you got carbon tax proposals, um, cap and trade proposals, kinds of things that would directly disincentivize and raise the cost of using and consuming carbon. 
And for reasons that I don't have to tell you guys about, um, that was a political disaster. Um, people don't want to have to spend more. Um, Sagar, I really enjoyed your your um, your uh, uh, clip the other day about you know blaming people for higher gas prices and sort ah, of the yeah. stupidity of that. Um, people you know are, are often struggling, and high gas prices and higher gas prices is a very difficult way politically to force through a change to deal with climate change. And so in the last really just 10, 15 years, we've had a complete 180, um, complete revolution in the approach uh, that in particularly in the Democratic Party, I think in large part or in part because of the Green New Deal and AOC and the left sort of pushing uh, a different approach. And that approach has said, instead of sacrificing economic growth, what if we, um, instead of targeting sort of the supply side of raising carbon, we instead dramatically reduce the cost of renewables, solar, and we, we tied that to a new um, attempt to revive the American industrial core, the Appalachian core um, that has been so hollowed out by the decline of the old energy economy. And so, and thanks for identifying that, Chris, I really appreciate it. I think the the attempt of that story was to say, there's all this talk about the bill, but sort of what's the core um, thing that this bill is trying to do? And I think it's become so um, obvious to so many people that we've sort of People aren't really talking about the the um, main intention of the bill, and that's really this this profound attempt at reviving America's manufacturing base with clean energy jobs. And we can get into the odds that has of success, but I think that's that's the core philosophy here. Um, and I talked to a lot of you know coal miners and others in West Virginia who are optimistic. You know, right now, um, you know, West Virginia used to be this industrial powerhouse, manufacturing powerhouse. And it's obviously now one of the poorest states in the country. Um, and so that has been a really devastating transition. And there's this hope that maybe this will will bring in these new these new high paying jobs. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think what's interesting about the piece and just generally about the attempt at bringing down costs, which you know I'm a major proponent of, is that this is both a departure in a different direction, but also uh, shows you very much like what Joe Manchin's philosophy is around all of this. So, can you point to the specific program that you talk about here about you know moving from a coal job to working in a battery facility? How plausible is that on a mass scale for people who are involved in those declining industries? That's a great question. Um, so I, I think just to, the first thing you mentioned about Manchin's philosophy, right? If you were just designing a climate bill, there's tons of stuff in here that you would have no reason of including, including, you know, expediting fossil fuel projects, um, money for mining. There, there is stuff in here that only makes sense from an energy abundance, Amer- American energy independence and lower energy cost for consumer yes. perspective. Um, which is not what a lot of the Democratic Party wanted to do, but was forced through by Manchin and, and his sort of demands. Um, on the question of, of can this really work? Um, you know, I talked to uh, a lot of mainstream centrist economists, some might accuse them of being more on the more neo- neoliberal side of things, mm-hmm. who say that this is a climate bill, a deficit reduction bill, and a healthcare bill. It is not uh, an economic manufacturing bill. Even the most optimistic um, readings, there's about 12, 13 million manufacturing jobs in America right now. This would add roughly $100,000 a year over 100,000 uh, new new jobs, uh, manufacturing jobs a year over the next 10 years. So, you know, that's that's something, but it's pretty small relative to, to the overall number. One of the big problems is solar and wind production. You sort of, you need the construction jobs to build the thing, but Unlike coal, which requires tons of manpower to sustain, 
but they kind of run on their own accord. And so the per job output per energy produced is relatively minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, the estimates for West Virginia, you know, I, I talked to um, the owner, the, the owners of this battery production plant. Lots of people are looking at West Virginia because it has a really trained um, workforce. It has lots of natural resources, abundant water and sort of the logistical trucking and supply routes um, that have fallen dormant. But that could actually be used as an export base. Um, so there's some hope for West Virginia in, in that reason. But, you know, this, this the biggest facility that could open with renewable jobs is this battery plant that you mentioned. They're building sort of long duration battery storage that could go into um, decarbonizing agriculture and other heavy industries. That's the, you know, there's lots of money in that, both in the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act to to sort of encourage those kinds of jobs. At most, we're thinking that could be 3,000 jobs, maybe a little more. But that's the equivalent of, um, you know, I think we, we say in the piece that Every um, six coal mines that have closed is the equivalent of 15,000 jobs. And over the last 20, 30 years, West Virginia has lost, I think, something on the order of 60, 70,000 coal mining jobs. So they have a long, long way to climb from, you know, from where they were. And, you know, obviously, I think I don't want to sound too um, too redundant or too obvious to people, mm-hmm. but you drive around West Virginia and the the remnants and the vestiges of a formerly great industrial power just everywhere. You can see the poverty. You can see what once was. And, you know, just the statistic that blew my mind the most from the story was that in the 1970s, the biggest employer in West Virginia was West Virginia Steel. They paid an average of $16 an hour. And now the biggest employer in West Virginia is Walmart, which pays an average of about $15 an hour. And that is not adjusting for inflation. So over 40, 50 years, the main employer in West Virginia now pays less than they did um, in the 1970s. And so that that decline is evident everywhere. And so I think some people are saying, look, this isn't going to revive the core of America's manufacturing um, hub, but, but it might be a start. Yeah, um, West Virginia near and dear to my heart because it's where my dad and his side of the family are all from. So I spent a good deal of time in the state. I'm seeing exactly what you're talking about. There's a misperception that, or a misconception that, you know, people there are just like, they just love coal and they're just all about coal. And it's like, no, this is just the one industry that's provided stable middle-class jobs and has supported, you know, entire communities around this industry. So, of course, they're not going to just willingly give that up without something to come in and make sure that they're going to be able to be provide for their family on a basic level. Um, Absolutely. And a lot of the coal miners I spoke to who are now working in renewables are, are trying to make that point that, in particular, a lot of the, the solar industry, when they first started coming into West Virginia and Appalachia, they were paying, you know, pretty low wages. And a lot of people on the left don't like to talk about this, but there are a lot of non-union firms. Um, yep. Yep. And the UMWA provided union um, you know, membership to coal miners for decades. And so, yeah, I mean, after the story came out, I got a lot of responses from sort of like smug people on the coast being like, you know, these people will never learn and kind of mm. discuss about how they're, um, about their intelligence and Besides the fact that most of these people would be completely lost doing the kind of manufacturing production jobs that coal miners know how to do, there, to your point, there's like a real rational economic reason that a lot of former coal miners have been reluctant to be part of this transition. But I think the hope is that with Mansion sort of bringing all this money specifically, I'll just mention one thing very quickly. The um, bill has specific tax credits 
for former, um, I think the, the technical term they use in the bill is like energy producing regions. And mm. so there's money that's directly intended to flow to high coal producing areas that go above and beyond all the other credits in the bill. So that's kind of a hope to say, like, let's directly target um, West Virginia. So we'll, we'll obviously have to see if that works. And then what do you make of um, some of the critique I've seen from the left that, you know, you're in the same bill that you're supposedly dealing with the climate. You're also giving a lot of goodies to the oil industry. And one of the most telling things is that actually big oil was kind of fine and cool with this bill. Um, what do you make of that? And I know you're not, you know, specifically a climate reporter, but you've dug into this, these numbers. What does the analysis look like of what this will do on balance to emissions? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that there's things in here that are going to be bad for the climate. Um, you know, the uh, amount of uh, new approvals for fossil fuel infrastructure is clearly putting us in the wrong direction in terms of reducing emissions. Um, and so I, I don't want to pick a, really pick a side. And I, I've seen those critiques, too, and I understand where they're coming from. And I think in particular, um, I, I'm trying to work on a story about this, but a lot of the indigenous groups are particularly very upset because the approval process will be expedited in a way that has historically and traditionally been very devastating for indigenous communities. From a biological diversity perspective, there's a lot of things to be worried about from the, the expediting process that you're referring to. Um, I, I, I do think that overwhelmingly, I haven't talked to a, a climate expert who doesn't think that this will in aggregate drive down a huge uh, number of emissions that are on balance. This is a huge, huge win for for carbon reduction and and for the climate. Even though those provisions are, um, as you said, uh, you know, potentially driving up carbon costs. I think the one thing I would stress um, is that maybe 10, 15 years ago, the opposition to new fossil fuel infrastructure was at a much higher pitch among climate experts. Um, yeah. In part because at the time renewables were still so not cost competitive with fossil fuel infrastructure. And so like the Mountain Valley pipeline that Manchin approved as part of this deal, you know, will carry all of this natural gas out uh, from West Virginia to export to Europe. That's the, the hope. In it. And 10 years ago, that would be a very, very scary prospect from a climate perspective, because we didn't know if solar and wind would ever be able to catch up. But now one of the climate experts I talked to are, are not that worried about that, because they think that even if it gets built now, Natural gas has come up relative to um, renewables and costs so much that that we think that will that that will not be cost competitive in ten years anyway. There's Basically, also, what's uh, happened to the coal industry mm, is yeah. it's not yeah. you know not competitive. Yes, it, exactly, so it's less of a reason to be afraid. The other thing that I would point out in terms of the oil industry being happy, and you know, people can have you know totally legitimate different opinions about this, but there's a lot of money in here for carbon capture, capture sequestration, the 45Q credits. Money basically that that's going to the oil and gas companies that they are supposed to use um, to lower their carbon footprint and um, sort of put money into other forms of renewable energy and to expedite other forms of renewable production. I talked to um, one, you know, traditionally natural gas and, and coal co company that's now investing in wind because of this and provisions like that. I I think. There's a lot of legitimate criticism that they are basically handouts to the fossil fuel companies, especially the oil companies that get this money for um, sort of unquestionably good um, carbon reduction schemes, putting money carbon in the ground. Some climate people think that actually will, you know, is important and, and will lead to emission reduction, and other people think that it's just kind of a show. I, I think 
at the worst case, that that is kind of just like a, a unnecessary federal giveaway. But it's not the same as saying it will increase emissions. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. for the people who are saying this is a giveaway to the oil company, like, yes. But that's different from saying it's a giveaway to the oil company that will dramatically increase emissions. Yeah, gotcha. So it's mm. just a giveaway, but without planetary devastation accompanying it. That makes yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah, you could be mad about, like, giving federal money and taxpayer money to the oil companies. Like, and I, yes. I get being angry about that. But it's it's a different critique than saying— we're giving all this money to the oil companies to, you know, destroy the planet. Got it. All very well said. I recommend um, not just this particular piece of reporting from you uh, to folks to really understand what's in this bill, but all of the work that you've been doing on this all the way along. And of course, always guys go and follow Jeff on Twitter uh, so you can see what is coming next. Jeff, Thanks, thank Jeff. you so much for taking some time with us. Thanks, I know guys, you're very busy. Appreciate it, man. Great to see you. Thank you guys so much for watching. Really appreciate it. As we said, the results are in. People were truly at war with one another. So we decide to placate all sides. We will include, for premium members, the Vimeo link and the YouTube link. Vimeo, if you want it ASAP. YouTube, if you're possibly willing to wait a little bit. Everybody will be happy. You know, some people do forget this, but it is available as a podcast instantly. Uh, I know that many of you like to listen to that, but, you know, watching it, and we don't spend all this money on production for a reason. So I get it. If you want to see, as you actually can see, uh, for those who are just watching, we do take it very seriously, our responsibility to provide a very, very good premium experience. So if you would like to help us, uh, the show, our mission, and more, there's a link down there in the description. Otherwise, we will see you all on Thursday. Love y'all. See you Thursday. dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.